Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Three pillars, though, displacement, control of movement, and severe repression. If you look at if you look at Israel, it's just a textbook case. Israel has replicated the system that apartheid was in South Africa. That was Ellen Davidson, longtime activist and photojournalist, contributing editor to the Independent Newspaper and managing editor of Peace and Planet News. And you will hear more from Ellen on the topic of apartheid. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country, thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up, like I said before, by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. Oh, and if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, go to our site, veteransforpeace.org we've got a donate button there also well this is our last show of the year and we might sometime have rehashed what we did as far as shows throughout the year but not this year we're going to just keep plugging away because there's just way too much to deal with and plus who wants to rehash 2023 when it was for the most part awful for so many people across the world with the exception of some union successes and all it does all 23 does is portend an even worse 24 so let's just go on with the show today ellen davidson is going to join us ellen is a longtime activist and photojournalist she works with veterans for peace and is a contributing editor for the independent newspaper and managing editor of Peace and Planet News, which if you're not getting it, you need to get it. And you can find it by going to peaceandplanetnews.org and subscribe. Okay, with that, Ellen has traveled multiple times to the occupied West Bank, twice leading delegations of Veterans for Peace. And she was elected to serve on the Veterans for Peace National Board for three years beginning in 2024. So, Ellen... We read your article in Peace and Planet News about apartheid, and I was recently talking to an old, old friend from college who argued with me that Israel is not an apartheid state. So I want to talk about apartheid, and I want to just clear this up for all our listeners about apartheid, and I'd like you to share what you wrote in your article and uh, about the experience of South Africa and then bring up Israel and make the comparison. So, well, well thank you for having me and thank you for this opportunity to talk about this subject because I think it's very important. So apartheid, the word literally means apartness. And it began 
as an ideology in South Africa, coincidentally in 1948, when Israel was founded. And the theory that they, the, the face that they put on it is that the races should have separate but equal development. And so this is a, this was a settler colonial regime in South Africa. And so as we know from segregation in schools in the United States, separate but equal is, is neither. Mm-hmm. So there were a number of laws that underlay this philosophy that kept things in place. Number one was that the Black native population of South Africa was considered to be citizens of what they called homelands or Bantustans. And these were these tiny little enclaves of not very usable land that were far from the urban centers and far from the areas of economic development. And many people were displaced to these lands and told, this is what you're a citizen of. You can't be in these other parts because you're not a citizen of these other parts of South Africa. So if you looked at a map of apartheid South Africa, you'd see these tiny little enclaves all over of these Bantustans. So the first pillar was displacement and land grabbing. And the second pillar was control of movement. And so for Black South Africans to move around in the white areas, which they had to because that was where the only jobs were, they had to have certain permits and they were allowed only allowed to be in this place or that place. And so these were the famous path laws in South Africa. And if you were stopped and, and didn't have your pass or you presented it, but it wasn't specific for the exact place where you were, you could get arrested and taken to their jails where you would no doubt be tortured. They were not... Uh, pleasant places. So that's the third pillar, which is this massive militarized repression of the Black population. If you look at those three pillars, and a fourth pillar, small, somewhat less important, was language, the, imposing the Afrikaans language as the official language of South Africa, and English, which is what people spoke if they spoke a Western language in the, in the Black areas, was, was not considered the the first language and so their schooling there was there were student protests saying you know we want to be schooled in english not in afrikaans afrikaans is not our language so those those three pillars though displacement control of movement and severe repression if you look at if you look at israel it's just a textbook case if you look at a current map of israel and the occupied territories you'll see that the occupied territories are broken up into these tiny little enclaves that are separated by Israeli-controlled territory, by settlements, by roads that only Israeli citizens can drive on. So Palestinians cannot move even freely about in these areas. They're just all these tiny little separate dots. It's It's not and would never be a viable country. And people who talk about a two-state solution have obviously never looked at this map. <laughs> There's no state there. So There's a bunch of little Bantu stands. And the control of movement in these areas, Israel has military checkpoints all through these areas. So for movement, just if you want to go from one Palestinian village to another, you frequently will have to go through an Israeli checkpoint in order to do that. And they also, they have this physical wall that they've built. The, they call it the separation barrier. The Palestinians call it the apartheid wall. And in, in the urban areas, it's it's huge 30-foot high concrete barrier. 
And there are there are places where it goes between a Palestinian village and their agricultural lands. There's a place that I've seen where it goes right through the middle of a playground next to a school. It goes right through the middle of Al-Quds University in Jerusalem. So for Palestinians to try and move around and live in these areas is very difficult. In Bethlehem, which is basically, Bethlehem is to Jerusalem like Brooklyn is to Manhattan, except there's not even a river. But there are so many barriers to travel. So it's a 10-minute it's a car trip if you can go on one of those Israeli-only roads. But mm. if you are a Palestinian and you have to travel on the Palestinian roads, you have to go through checkpoints and around this and around the wall and through this place where you can get. It's an hour and a half to get to the neighboring, you know, they're practically contiguous. And then the third, the third pillar were these past laws. And so again, Palestinians living in the occupied territories, they don't have Israeli citizenship. They don't have Israeli ID. So they can't travel inside Israeli controlled areas. They can't travel freely because they haven't got the proper ID. Now, there are some people who live in the in East Jerusalem, which East Jerusalem was occupied in 67, was taken over by the Israelis. And so they set up a special system whereby some Palestinians living there have what are called Jerusalem IDs. And this gives them certain privileges and, and rights, that they can travel around certain areas of Jerusalem, that they have certain municipal services and so on. But what Israel has been doing in trying to annex more and more of Jerusalem and, and Judaize it is what they they do. They they want to change the demographic balance so that it becomes more Jewish and less Palestinian. So there are so many barriers, even just within East Jerusalem. If you look at the path of the wall, it's like a snake with little branches. So people living in, in certain areas of Jerusalem find that they can no longer get to their grocery store or their dentist or their job. So then they start going to a grocery store, dentist, or job that is more facing toward the east um, because they can get to that. And then, then the Israeli authorities say, well, see, life in this area is not really centered on Jerusalem anymore, so you're not going to have a Jerusalem ID anymore. And they take it away. Mm -hmm. So I think those, I mean, those three pillars are just very clear examples of how Israel has replicated the system that apartheid was in South Africa. We've been okay. hearing a lot about the uh, violence in the West Bank since October 7th, even though there was a huge amount of violence in the West Bank long before October 7th, really ever since this new administration came in. But uh, not hearing as much about East Jerusalem, although I do, I had heard that Al-Aqsa Mosque had been occupied. Can you bring us up to date on any of that, or have you heard? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the Israeli government has been making provocations around Al-Aqsa Mosque for quite a while now. They have been regularly invading with police and troops and interfering with people worshiping. And Al-Aqsa is, I believe, it's the third holiest site in Islam. And so um, Palestinian Muslims are very sensitive about Israelis and them invading the mosque. And it's been a point of contention because it's built on the Temple Mount where historically, there was a Jewish temple that was destroyed a long, long time ago. <laughs> so certain Israeli religious zealots would like to get rid of Al-Aqsa and rebuild a Jewish temple there. And they do everything they can to try and disrupt what happens there. 
I'm not sure about the current exact status, but oh, during the the summer and fall, there were several times when Israeli soldiers um, made incursions into the mosque, arrested worshippers, beat worshippers. I believe they might even have tear gas. Um, yeah, I've read that. Um, so, I mean, can you imagine in a place of worship, soldiers coming in mm-hmm. with guns and tear gas and invading one of the most holy places of worship? It's So, of course, the Palestinian population was quite outraged and then there were there were retaliatory um attacks of Palestinians on on Israeli citizens that were provoked by this. How long has this apartheid system been going on? So there's well, a couple of questions there. I mean base it started basically in, in 1948. In nineteen forty eight a huge segment of the Palestinian population was displaced by massacres in their villages and then whoever was left fled, and other people who fled because they heard about the massacres. And people, when people left, when Palestinians left in '48, they took their house keys with them because they thought they would come back in a few days or a few weeks when things cooled off. And and the house key is a powerful symbol in Palestine of of the right of return. So people fled. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were basically pushed out of where they lived, and became refugees either on the West Bank or in Gaza. So already you have the displacement and the land grab. Then within what were the Israeli borders at that time, Palestinians and Israelis did not have equal rights. Palestinians within that lived under a kind of martial law and Jewish citizens had different rights. And there's still people have different rights in terms of immigration, in terms of um, uh if you marry somebody, whether they can become a citizen. Um, so if a Palestinian marries their Palestinian um, partner from one of the occupied territories, they're not automatically going to become a citizen. But if a Jewish person from Israel would marry a Jewish person from Brooklyn, they would easily be able to transition to Israeli citizenship. So it started right there with unequal mm-hmm. rights. And then in 67, when Israel invaded the West Bank and Gaza, they put those areas under military control and grab, basically grabbed all of that land. And ever since, they've been building settlements, particularly in the West Bank. They also built settlements in Gaza. They made a big deal out of the fact that they withdrew from Gaza. And so they're not occupying Gaza anymore, they say. So so those settlements were abandoned within Gaza. But then they put Gaza under this tight siege since 2007, where there's no one allowed in or out without Israeli permission. So they're still basically controlling movement in the territory. They're just not, they just, until October, they were not physically in there Mm. patrolling it. Well, you mentioned something uh, important right there because my friend from college said, well, why don't the Palestinians in Gaza just leave? Why, why can't, why don't they move away? And you said nobody in or out. That's right. People in Gaza, their travel in and out is controlled by the Israeli government. And there are cases of students who would get scholarships to go study in Europe or the United States who would be unable to take advantage of these opportunities because they could not get out. People could not get out for health care. So the Israelis would sort of, in a very in a very uh, parsimonious way, let some people in and out for various you know, health care reasons or so on. But 
basically the citizens of Gaza cannot travel freely and people cannot get in there. I myself have tried to get in there several times and have been un unable to get in there. There have been boats trying to go there. And if you if you approach Gaza from the sea, Israel will come out in international waters. Israeli military boats will come out and basically in an act of piracy, take your boat. And they've been doing that for years. Mm -hmm. um, so so travel within travel in and out of Gaza is not free. Now, right now, the Israelis, they've been pushing the population further and further to the south. It's documented that that several government officials have talked about what they really want to do right now is push the Gazan population all the way out into the Sinai and basically take back over that territory. And people in Gaza do not want to leave right now, even though the situation is so desperate and dangerous, because they know if they leave, they will never come back. They learned that in 1948, and they're not doing that again. And that's Egypt control that. So yeah, no, Egypt, Egypt, they don't Egypt want it. is not is not. For, yeah, I mean, they certainly do not want a, a population of a million or two Palestinian refugees in within their territory. Mm. And to their credit, they also are not going to play along with this game of ethnic cleansing. So the apartheid in South Africa stopped. It did stop. And here's how. It was a combination of nonviolent population uh, protests within the population of South Africa, violent protests as well. There was there was certainly um, armed uprisings as well and and some acts of terrorism. And in the end, what really did it was a worldwide campaign to isolate South Africa economically, politically, diplomatically, culturally. When they tried to send their rugby team on tour, you know, they were protested all over the globe. And they became, um, as uh, Nelson Mandela called it, the skunk of the world. <laughs> and this was very important because... Within South Africa, the military repressive apparatus was very, very strong. And so even though there was massive opposition, and in the case of South Africa, the population imbalance, the white population was much, much smaller than the black population. But even with that, their military repressive apparatus was very, very strong. And it, so it still took this whole worldwide campaign to finally push the country to change its laws. And I think it's worth noting that toward the end, even the U.S. toward the end was respecting the arms embargo against South Africa, the one country that never respected any embargo and was selling South Africa the arms and the technology that they needed in the end was Israel. Yeah, no surprise. Well, what is your perspective on how this is going to end in Gaza, in, in Israel-Gaza, Israel-West Bank? And is there any chance of it going back to the way it was on October 6th. I believe that Israel would really like to ethnically cleanse the entire Gaza Strip and that they would like to push out as much of the Palestinian population as they can and then regain control of that territory and eventually merge it into the rest of Israel and you know bring in a Jewish Israeli population and settlements and so on. I believe that that is actually their goal. And I think the only thing stopping them, the only thing that will stop them is the rest of the world. I think that just like in South Africa, there, there, are, there are some wonderful people inside Israel who have been doing amazing work 
against the apartheid system and in and in solidarity with the Palestinian population. There are some of my best friends are some of these amazing Israeli Jewish activists, but that group is too small. That the change is never going to come from within Israel. It has to come from the rest of the world, just as it did in South Africa. I think the only thing that's going to stop Israel from this is if the rest of the world and the United Nations and even our very own United States says, no, you cannot do this. No, we're not going to sell you any more weapons to do this. No, no, no. It has to come from the rest of the world because the will inside Israel is to take over. How how much does the U.S. actually facilitate this apartheid? Without the U.S., there would be no Israeli apartheid state. The U.S. from the beginning has given support to Israel, and everybody knows, I think, pretty much, we send them about $3 billion a year. Just That's just the baseline aid that we just send them. And at this point, that monetary aid is not as important as the diplomatic and political cover that the U.S. provides for Israel in the world. We've seen over the past few weeks how many times has the U.S. vetoed or stalled or or blocked from coming to a vote resolutions within the Security Council demanding a ceasefire. The U.S. has given Israel the cover that allows it to do this. U.S. has been vetoing resolutions in the Security Council about Israeli settlements, about refugee rights of return. The U.S. has been block, blocking to the extent of it possible everything that the U.N. has ever tried to say about Israel. I think the most it ever happened was under Obama once. There was a resolution condemning the growth of settlements and the U.S. abstained. That was the best we could do, which not block it, not veto it. Mm-hmm. Um so the U.S. has been has been like this big wing covering over a little little brother Israel and keeping it protected from the criticism of the rest of the world. And to some extent, Europe has also Europe fall, falls prey to the Israeli the Israeli defense against anything is to cry anti-Semitism, any criticism, any attempt to say you have to provide equal rights, any attempts to say you cannot have a country, a Jewish state in which people who are not Jewish don't have the same rights. That's not a democracy. Anything, anybody that says that gets tarred with the brush of being anti-Semitic. And for myself, I'm Jewish, so they so they can't do that. So they so I get called a self-hating Jew. So so Europe to some extent follows along with this, and but I think Europe cannot at this point cannot stomach what's going on. And and so do you see a little bit of movement there in Europe? Do you, do a little bit, a little bit. There are there are a couple of countries that have kicked out Israeli diplomats and broken ties. Um, on the other hand, in Germany, for example, the reaction has been they are um, cracking down on protests in solidarity with Palestinians, and they have uh, they are pushing even um, stronger laws, saying you have to support Israel to be a citizen of one German state. Tried to pass a law. I'm not sure if they passed it, but that a requirement of citizenship in that German state is that you support Israel's right to exist. Um, so Germany has is is moved backwards on this. 
Talk about anti-Semitism in the United States that has nothing to do with Israel that's been around for a long time. I actually, I think that the that the way Israel uses anti-Semitism as a cudgel to beat its critics is actually detrimental to the real struggle against real anti-Semitism. Right. I think that it confuses the issue. Now, if you look at the, for example, a lot of the evangelical church, they are no friends of the Jews. They are as they, a lot of them are just blatantly outright anti-Semitic. They are huge supporters of the state of Israel because they have some, you know, belief that when it, when the Jews have possession of the land of Israel again, then there's a big war, and then there's Armageddon, and then they all get raptured. I'm not sure how that kind of goes, but <laughs> the Jews like that. who don't convert will go straight to hell. Yes, that would be me. Um, <laughs> so. Supporting Israel is not a litmus test for whether you're anti-Semitic or not, because plenty of really virulent anti-Semites are huge, strong supporters of the state of Israel. The real, very real anti-Semitism that is around in this country is coming from um, not from the Palestinian solidarity movement, but from white nationalist movement. And again, from the right, really right Christian. Well, yeah. And, I, you know, I, my, my parents were first generation Russian Jews who left around the beginning of the 20th century when pogroms and all that were going increasing. Mm-hmm. But uh, we lived in uh, Maine and uh, my parents were from Boston, but my parents had never really observed or practiced uh, any Jewish tradition other than, uh, you know, the, the borscht. But we didn't know anything about it. And, and I heard horrible things about Jews all the time, the whole time mm-hmm. from adults, kids, everybody else. But uh, I think... Yeah, I grew up in Central Pennsylvania where oh, yeah. Jew mother was an insult. You yeah. Jewed somebody down if you were trying to bargain. Right, I still hear, I've still heard that. Yeah, Jew them down. Uh, my, I met a, a neighbor uh, who was a friend of me and my brothers, and we were talking about... Second World War. This is in the in the uh, early '60s, and he said, "Well, my dad said, he says, well, my dad said Hitler was bad, but at least he tried to get rid of the garbage people." I mean, awesome. that kind of yeah, no, I mean, there is real anti-Semitism, and yeah, and I think that it's very dangerous the way Israel has muddied up the the waters of trying to understand anti-Semitism and. And to me, I have a few responses to some of the people who say, well, how will Jews ever be safe if they're not? So one response that I have is you're never going to defeat anti-Semitism unless you fight it where it is. Uh You have to fight it where it is or you're never going to you're never going to get rid of it. I would love to see something on the members of Congress, Senate and House. How many of them belong to uh, country clubs, et cetera, that exclude Jews? Yeah, because I know in Nashville, the, the you know the big country clubs that people like Bill Frist belong to, you know, Jews need not apply. But they're going to be the first ones to accuse somebody of anti-Semitism if they're against whatever yeah. Israel's doing. So what you what you might be saying, Ellen, is these folks that are so pro-Israel and pro-Israel funding from the United States might be really doing backdoor, under-the-cover anti-Semitism. Oh, yes, and some of it is not under the cover. The religious right is not under the cover about about anti-Semitism. Jews are 
God doesn't hear our prayers. It's not under the covers at all. And Israel has no problem with these people. They invite them over all the time. Absolutely. The other thing that I would say about that is that, first of all, Palestinians are also Semites. Right. And they're they're more in common with Jews than than not. And that the the way that you struggle against anti-Semitism is by making principled alliances and solidarity with other anti-racist struggles and placing anti-Semitism in the context of other racist, anti-racist struggles, as opposed to this singularity about the Jews and everybody hates the Jews Uh and we are the most oppressed and it's always all about the Jews. I think that the way you struggle against racism is by making alliances with mm-hmm. other oppressed people, yeah. not by going and stealing their land and then crying anti-Semitism if somebody cries foul. Mm-hmm. You are listening to our discussion with Ellen Davidson, Veterans for Peace board member, editor of the Peace and Planet News, and activist who has taken veterans on several trips to Palestine to understand apartheid, as she helps us understand not only the Israeli apartheid state, but also anti-Semitism and how Israel is not doing the Jewish population any favor. Are there Palestinians living in Israel? Yes, 20% of the population of Israel in its formal borders are Palestinian. And And they do have nominal, you know, they have the right to vote. Um, There are Palestinians in the Knesset. But you can't run for the Knesset under a party whose position does not accept the propriety of a Jewish state. So they are treated differently. And then in terms of land use within Israel, a lot of the land is controlled by the Jewish National Fund, which has a mandate of using the land to benefit the Jewish people. So Palestinians within Israel, the Palestinian towns and and cities within Israel have a lot more overcrowding. They're unable to expand. They are unable to, they don't get permits to build. And if they build anyway, things get demolished. It's apartheid within apartheid. Inside Israel as well, there are unequal rights. There are also, um, for example, in the Negev, there are a lot of what are called unrecognized villages because Israel has just never recognized them as municipal entities. They don't get services. They don't get garbage pickup or any kinds of services. And they... Um, and then sometimes the Israelis come in and say, this is unsanitary, so we're going to demolish it. There's a village known as, it's called Al-Arakib in the Negev, that has been demolished more than 200 times. And this is within Israel. And Israel does not recognize their deeds to the land, which date back to the Ottoman time. Because Israel chooses to recognize the laws and the deeds that they want and don't recognize the laws and deeds that they don't dating from those times and they literally have demolished this village 200 times and i've been there twice it had been demolished several times in between my visits and Mm. so the second time when i came it was a different place entirely the first time when i came they had a bunch of large trailers where they had school and so on and facilities and the second time i came it was basically a bunch of tarps being held up in the desert Mm. you you've mentioned you've gone a couple of times Why do you go? Why do I go? I feel that it's important to show solidarity in person. I think it's very meaningful to the Palestinian people when 
when people from the United States come, express solidarity and want to see for themselves what is going on in it. So I feel the importance of people who travel there is what they bring back and the personal stories that they can say, like what I just told you about this village where I had the best meal that I had of my whole trip there because these people have nothing, absolutely nothing, are the most generous and sharing. And you you can't visit them without them making you coffee at the very least and putting out a plate of pastries. But mm-hmm. so I can come back with that and I can say, this is what I saw with my eyes. So when people talk to me, I have that personal experience that is, I think, very helpful in moving hearts and minds of people who just have no idea what's going on. So that's important. And the other thing that we've done, particularly with the veteran delegations, is that we stand with them in the nonviolent protests. So there are U.S. military veterans who are coming over there and standing in front of the line with Palestinians. We get invited to the front. We don't just go there. When we're getting tear gassed and attacked by Israeli settlers or soldiers. And I have seen our U.S. military veterans standing face to face with a line of Israeli soldiers and talking to them and saying, you know, we know what it is to be a soldier and we know what it is to follow orders. But we also know that when an order is illegal or wrong or immoral, we know that you have to that you have to be a human being first and you have to do the human thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it didn't make the soldiers stand down and leave us alone, but it planted something, I think, in some of their hearts that might grow into something. So I mm-hmm. think it's important for that reason, too. Well, my friend from college uh, was questioning how I could feel some sympathy and support for the Palestinians because he said they all want to kill us. Well, I'm still here. No Palestinian. I know, you're still there. I have received nothing but warm welcome from every Palestinian that I've ever met over in the West Bank and inside Israel. Mm -hmm. And every single Palestinian I had any extended contact with has made a point of saying, we're not against the Jewish people. We are against the settlement, the settler state, and we're against the occupation, and we're against the repression. And we're against what the Israeli government is doing to us. But we have nothing against the Jewish people. And part of that culture there, it's a very um, hospitable culture. It's a huge part of the culture is to be hospitable. And I have never been treated with anything but the most generous warmth and welcome. When you hear the the Palestinian protesters or the the protesters uh, saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. My old friend used that to say, see, they want to eliminate us. They want to kill us all. Yes. I mean, first of all, where in from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Do you hear kill all the Jews? It's not actually there. Mm -mm. That's not what people are saying. And from the river to the sea actually started with the Jewish Zionist movement. And, And they've been actually trying to control all the land from the river to the sea. To me, what that slogan says is we have to have democracy and it has to be from the river to the sea. That means inside Israel's borders. It means everybody has to have equal rights in that land from the river to the sea. Everybody must have equal rights. And that's base, that's the basic demand of, for example, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And it's the basic demand of solidarity activists for, for Palestine is that everybody needs equal rights from the river to the sea. 
if you want to try and divide it up into two states somehow, I, you know, it's not viable. It's not going to, I don't think it can possibly work anymore that if it ever could have that solution is long, has long been destroyed by the settlements and the, whatever you do, everybody has to have equal rights. And that includes Palestinians, Palestinians inside the state of Israel. It includes Palestinians in occupied territories. Everybody gets equal rights from the river to the sea. Yeah. That's that's what that means to me. And that's what it means to everybody I know who's ever chanted it. Mm-hmm. Except for Likud, since it's on their platform. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, their platform is from the river to the sea, controlled by Zionists. Right. <laughs> Ellen, okay, we pretty much made a case about this being apartheid. And we've gone through a number of things, the, the counter-anti-Semitism. This has got to end when they're done with Gaza. Do they do something similar in the West Bank? I think that that's what some people actually think they can do. Now, I don't think it's going to be possible because there's just too, there's too large a Palestinian population. And as I said, they, they fell for it once in 1948. They are not going to fall for it again. Mm-hmm. They're not going to leave their home thinking that they're going to come back. So the Palestinians are not going anywhere. And I think that as the Israeli actions become more and more heinous and more and more obviously racist and repressive, I think that the rest of the world, as it did with South Africa, and it took a while for people to really get up to understanding why apartheid was evil and had to be eliminated. I think that as the rest of the world wakes up that that's that's the answer that the rest of the world as i said it has to be jointly the pressure from within of the population rising up themselves and the pressure from without because that's what did it in south africa and that's why i'm a big proponent of the movement known as bds which is boycott divestment and sanctions and boycotts are a long time honored tradition of nonviolent protests to bring about change and i think that the fact that there are laws on the books in several states outlawing boycotting Israel mm-hmm. or saying that you can't, you know, work for the state if you don't sign a pledge saying you won't boycott. There's a bunch of it's and on First Amendment grounds alone, it's preposterous. But and the fact that the Israeli propaganda machine fights so hard against it tells you what a potent tool it is. And it has been gaining, the movement has been gaining strength. I didn't realize when I was in college in the late 70s, being an activist for divestment on my college campus, that the actual, the movement for divestment in South Africa actually began in the 1950s. And it had taken till the late 70s for it to really get the kind of traction where it was visible on the college campuses. The movement for BDS in Palestine is much younger than that and has really made remarkable strides. And I think that the answer is that there has to be nonviolent worldwide pressure that's got to force Israel to become a democratic state. I know that BDS originated with Palestine civilian. Yeah, with civil society. Was that West Bank or Gaza or both? It came, I think, mostly from civil society organizations in the West Bank. One thing I learned actually on one, on my very first trip in 2007, I was fortunate enough to meet with 
the author, the historian Ilan Pape, he's an Israeli historian. He's written incredible books about the origins of the Israeli state and the ethnic cleansing that went on. And he was actually, when I met him, he was about to move to England because his family and his life had been threatened so much. He just could no longer live inside Israel. But what he said to our delegation was, we don't need people to come here and show us how to communicate nonviolently with the Palestinians. We know how to talk to the Palestinians. We know where they are. They're right down the road. Your job is to make Israel a pariah state. That's your job as U.S. activists. And that has stuck with me all these years. And I hold it to its strong. Our job is to make Israel a pariah state, to make them so isolated that they can no longer function as an apartheid state and they have to change. You're so optimistic, really. (laughs) A lot more optimistic than me. Of course, I can see a cloud on a sunny day, but I'm thinking, okay, how do we make Israel a pariah state? Well, the only way Israel is going to be a pariah is if the United States is going to be a pariah. Because we've got our nose so far up Israel's butt that (laughs) it's intractable. We're not, so I can see us being totally isolated (laughs) along with Israel. Well, Hmm. I think it wouldn't hurt for the world to, I, I mean, the United States has its own crimes and wars all over the world that that uh, the world should be rising and, and to some extent does object to. And so I, I'm not sure that would be a bad thing, but I think at this point it's unrealistic to, in terms of just the economic role of the U.S. in the world. I think it's a little unrealistic to hope mm-hmm. that anybody would start initiating BDS on the U.S. I don't know if I'm optimistic, but I think... But I do what I do because whether or not it brings a result, it's what I have to do. As a human being, yeah. you have to struggle against injustice. Mm-hmm. And whether whether you're attached to the results or not, this is what you have to do because it's the only thing to do. Yeah. And I also want to say that one thing that has given me a lot of hope lately is looking around the country in the last two months, Every single day, something is getting shut down, a bridge, a road, uh, something. And it's been a lot of that has been led by Jews. So this whole lock on some kind of monolithic Jewish community, that myth has been dispelled. And a lot of Jewish people, particularly young people, are saying, no, this is not in our name. No, this is not protecting us. No, we don't buy this. And. I think that that really helps, first of all, battling the the anti-Semitism charges. And second of all, it just gives me hope that people can, when they learn the truth, people can change and stand up for what's right. As a VFP, I know they've been at some of the same demonstrations as um, Jewish Voice for Peace, but has VFP made any specific attempts to ally with them? Well, individuals have. I mean, I and my partner are both members of VFP, and we work very closely with Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, VFP has put out a number of good statements about (laughs) the situation Uh and and constantly (laughs) encourages members to go out and join this stuff. And I would, too. I would say whatever you can get out and do, and in fact, I'm going to a vigil this afternoon in (laughs) Newfaults, and then tomorrow we do one in Woodstock. Even just a vigil standing 
on town green with your signs, even if it's just 20 of you, which is, you know, about what we get up in Woodstock. People drive by, they honk, they give us the thumbs up. Mm -hmm. It makes people aware. And mm -hmm. people in Palestine know this is happening and mm -hmm. it makes a difference to them. What's your sign going to say? We have a number of them. We have a giant one that says, what about Gaza? Free mm -hmm. Palace. The one that we've taken with us to the West Bank several times says U.S. veterans say in a big no, no Israeli apartheid, no U.S. military aid, no occupation. So we, we pull that one out a lot. And we have a sign about that was suggested by Ralph Nader about Biden's war tax mm -hmm. or genocide. If, if people want to get involved with BDS, is there a place to contact or is there a... Oh, there is, and I'm so sorry. I should like have had that website ready for you. Um, oh, that's all right. But but look online. There are different organizations that are doing stuff here in New York State. We have a coalition of people that um, we've been keeping an eye on the legislation in the state level that gets introduced every year. But so far, fortunately, hasn't gone anywhere. But we're a little worried this year. You know that various levels of forbidding organizations that advocate boycotting Israel mm -hmm. to interact with the state government. Um, I don't know, and I should probably. Does Veterans for Peace support BDS? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Have you ever uh, been questioned or uh, delayed entering Israel because of your Veterans for Peace membership? Uh, no. And when I go through the airport, I don't wear my usual regalia. And mm -hmm. fortunately, when I go in and I so you're undercover. I'm undercover. My middle name is Rachel. That helps. And when I go in with my partner, um, you know, we look like a nice Jewish couple coming to see the holy site. Get I was just wondering if the Israeli intelligence is... You know, I, I don't understand why they don't. But so far they haven't. Um, but we'll they, they're certainly, they, you know, maybe I'm just not visible enough and I should make myself more visible. But I like to be able to go there. So I don't want to get myself blacklisted. Yeah. Um, On the other hand, it would be a feather in our cap to be officially recognized as a threat. So when are you going back? I don't have any immediate plans. I'm hoping sometime in the next year that we could do another delegation with veterans. I think it's it's also been really meaningful for the veterans who have come because they look at the situation there. And for example, when we were there in 2017, Matt Ho, who I'm sure you know and probably have had on your show. Oh, you, um, you bet. Matt Ho was so powerfully moved. He saw a lot of demolished houses. That's one thing that Israel does. They demolish a lot of Palestinian houses. And, and he saw the giant bulldozers and and equipment and he said we used to have two um two pieces of equipment like that that were under my command in iraq mm. and we called them armageddon and homewrecker it was devastating to him and brought up so much of his feelings about what he had done in iraq and it was mm. so helpful to him to be able to come to palestine and take a step in the opposite direction from some of the stuff that he had done while in the U.S. military, and it's very healing, I think, of both PTSD and moral injury to take veterans there and let them stand together on the side of justice and get hit with the U.S.-made tear gas <laughs> that gets lobbed at us. It's a very healing thing. You may, you've probably talked about this already, but 
I'm thinking a, a, a real stumbling block we've got is separating the concept of Israel from from being Jewish. I think the, that Israel has deliberately blurred the lines between the state of Israel and Jews around the world. And I think that one of the things that's happening now is people are coming to recognize that that is that they are not synonymous, that Israel does not speak for or represent or protect Jews anywhere in the world that Jews are not necessarily attached. And it's hard for people who grew up with this mythology about Israel and the land without a people for the people without a land. And we made the desert bloom and all of this stuff and give money to plant trees in Israel. It's it's a lot to let go of that and see the truth and see that the trees that were planted were actually planted to cover up the ruins of the demolished villages of the Palestinians that had been forced out. But Jews, particularly the younger generation of Jews, are growing up without that automatic attachment to the state of Israel. And I think that the more that that Jews themselves detach themselves from that concept, the more the rest of the world can see that Judaism mm -hmm. and Zionism are very different. And in fact, what Israel is doing is violating every single principle that is honorable and good of the Jewish tradition. And that, that what Israel is doing is the opposite of Judaism. It's the opposite of seeking justice. It's the opposite of standing with the oppressed and your fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. The more the more this goes on, the more people are able to see that. Nobody in the media or apparently in Israel reads the Hebrew prophets. I, I saw a recent poll where over 90% of the people in Israel think the IDF is doing just fine. Yes. No, 90% of the Jewish population of Israel. Okay. Because 20% of that population is Palestinian. Yeah. Okay, so 90% of the Jewish population Yeah, that's what the Israel polls are the, of the Jewish that, population. Think that this genocide is just fine. Yes, and 56% think that they're not doing enough. A lot of that, I think, is still the just the acute trauma, psychic trauma for them that their whole bubble doesn't exist that they've been living think they've been living in part of it is is that um they're not and the the israeli mainstream media for the most part is not showing what's going on in gaza the way we're and you know we're seeing it every day on the news on the you can't get you can't get away from it here but i think that there's a fair amount of deliberately tamping that down in in the mainstream media, and so so regular Israelis are not seeing the rubble and the and the whole neighborhoods flattened that we're seeing all the time. I, I don't watch cable. Do they actually show anything? Well, Al Jazeera shows. Al Jazeera now. You're talking. now. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't actually. I don't actually have a television, so I don't actually watch <laughs> the mainstream news. But I know that I know my coworkers are seeing it, and they're not. They're not just watching democracy now. Yeah. Well, but you know, Haaretz has put out some pretty uh, is stuff really that done, I haven't yeah. seen anything that strong in the Times or the Post. But actually, the Times had a piece yesterday that was I was oh, surprised how they talked about how uh, Israel tells people to go to these safe zones and then they bomb them with two thousand pound bombs, and they really covered yeah. the issue pretty thoroughly. <laughs> It's horrible. And, and I actually saw a CNN reporter get in the face of an Israeli 
diplomat or part of the administration uh, and just yeah it was yeah it was about the christians the two christian ladies that were just killed mm. there outside of a catholic church where the yeah. cnn re- uh, cnn reporter i think cnn and fought back when the when the lady from the administration says there are no christians in in Gaza, there are no churches. Yeah, right. And there are oh, no yeah. churches. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no I, churches. There are no Christians. She was. That was just. And she was like the ambassador. It just, it just shows you how much they lie. Yeah. They just lie. They make it up. It's incredible how much Israeli diplomats and spokespeople simply flat out lie. Um, you can't believe anything they say. Have you had any success with letters to the editor? I write them, but they never. <laughs> we get them we things. get them in the paper up here in Woodstock. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes they bring out a barrage of people on the other side who basically expose their uh-huh. their racism and their viciousness. So um yeah. we do manage up I here. Think it would in be the great smaller if... media markets, I think it's possible yeah. right. to make a difference. I think it would be great uh if we could share letters to the editor, maybe plagiarize a little sure <laughs> so uh, you have i don't know if you've got either of our emails but i'd be i'd love to see what you've had to say all right be good well ellen this has been a joy and i know you've got another rally to go to but you know you're just fun to be on the show with well so. thank you likewise likewise <laughs> and i really appreciate this chance to talk with you about this because i think it's just really important for people to understand that we're dealing with apartheid here and it has to stop. We always end with a song. Now that does not mean that we all sing, but, <laughs> but is there a song that you would like to end this show with that would um, more or less reflect what we've been talking about? You know, I don't know how much if my voice is up to it, but um there's actually a song that we, it was written as a round by a friend of mine, and we've done it on our vigil picket line um, here in Woodstock. And it, it's the words of the Rabbi Hillel, and it goes like this. If I am not for myself, who will be? Tark is honking the horn, but I'll send you an audio of that done correctly if you want it. All that. right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Ellen. This has been great. Again, that was Ellen Davidson, Veterans for Peace board member, editor of Peace and Planet News. And as you just heard, Ellen had to take off to the rally. So that gave Harvey and I, but mostly Harvey, a time to reflect. I just think it's it's such hypocrisy to talk about uh, Zionism and anti-Semitism and ignoring how deep anti-Semitism is in our culture and how it's ignored. I mean, and it's not just the, you know, Jews will not replace us. It's not just the moral superiority people who can point at the Nazis. I mean, it's a lot like uh, racism embedded. Now, do you think Uh, that what Israel is doing is ramping up anti-Semitism? Because I think so. The thing is, they're trying to equate themselves to what it is to be Jewish. And and uh, I just think, you know, there's been a sea change, certainly in this country and in, uh, probably a lot in Europe too. Although, you know, Europe was virulently Semitic. The French, you know, the British, not just the Germans, 
I mean, that's one reason why uh, they were uh, pretty much by default ending up in the Middle East because the Europeans mm -hmm. had taken all their property and didn't want to see them showing up for it. And when after the Holocaust, they didn't want them coming back. Right. Long it's, story. Oh, it's a long story. It's complicated and Israel is not doing anything to uncomplicate it. And they couldn't be doing it without us. And with right. friends like us, you don't need enemies. Well, what I always tell people when we get into discussions, well, you know, we're going to support our Jewish constituents. And to me, what I just say is, and that makes you a friend of Israel. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. That's and that's right. what we've done with Israel. But I feel like out of respect for the people of Gaza, I shouldn't be putting any lights on, turning any of that stuff, you know. You're so right. I just don't feel putting the lights on. While this chaos, this this horrific it's evil. It, it, evil is going on, you're just wondering. And, you know, I got our, our nativity scene out there, and it's like, I ought to just shine the nativity because this wouldn't be part of Jesus' message at all. So You'd have to do a nativity scene with a big bomb sticking in the ground next to it. Well, did you see Democracy Now, where they have their nativity, Bethlehem, a church in Bethlehem, yeah. have their nativity scene surrounded uh -huh. by rubble? Yeah, I think, uh, I didn't see it, but I heard her talking about it. Following all this stuff about the you know, the starvation, and how it's just oh. getting so hard. To think of the agony of parents whose kids are pleading with them, you know, who are so hungry and so thirsty, and they cannot give them anything. No. And to watch them just slowly die, it's, it's just tearing me up. You can't. Yeah. And to think that Israel launched one of its heaviest raids on our Christmas Day. Trying to work on a letter to the editor, but I don't know. I just think, you know, this whole, this latest thing with the U.S. dragging its feet all week on this resolution and ending up with something that says nothing, it means nothing, and will accomplish nothing. Just, just a bunch of vague language, and the U.S. abstained. But they, like, there was one thing, it was the UN was going to be the ones inspecting the aid trucks because it was taking Israel two weeks to search a truck and all this crap. You know, they're just trying to delay any kind of aid. And so they had to change the language of that because uh, it would have made Israel. Well, Israel's not on the fucking Security Council. You don't have to change anything for them. I mean, come on. <laughs> Nothing's going to get done. I just look around and I look at the people and I look at, the, you know, all this Christmas bullshit. Bull yeah, peace yeah. on earth, goodwill to men. And I'm thinking, wow, Where are, are you really from? not paying attention? Right. So we will leave it there. And here's that song that Ellen recommended. If I am not for myself, who will be? If I am for myself alone, what am I? And if not now,
myself.